Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. So, peace to you, or shalom, shall I say, and the common response would be 
Shalom, right? Um, we're going to be talking about being a peacemaker today. Uh, this whole month series of sermons has just totally been racked. Uh, we haven't accomplished, I don't believe, a sermon in the series that I had planned for this month due to a myriad of different circumstances and issues. But that's usually how it is when God decides he wants to do something different. Uh, today's sermon was not originally a part of the series that was planned for the month of January. The month of January, our theme has been perfect peace. How many of you have experienced perfect peace during the month of January in every aspect of your life? <laughs> All right, our culture's not experiencing it. Our globe is not experiencing it. My guess is some of your homes are not experiencing perfect peace. Um, but is peace something um, that is specifically kept, or is it something you have to hold on to? What is peace? What is this biblical picture of peace that should be this perfect picture of peace? Initially, like I said, the first two Sundays of this month, we're going to be focusing on Genesis 1 and 2 and what perfect peace looked like before the fall of humankind. We didn't get to that. I wasn't here for the first two Sundays because I had COVID and uh, we had some guest speakers. This week, we're going to look at one verse. I rarely look at one verse. When you hear me preach or have seen me preach before, it's usually a chapter or two of scripture that we read. But I want to pull out one verse. And it's actually from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And you can turn there. Uh, I'm going to be reading from um, actually... The NRSV, which is the New Revised Standard Version. I believe it's a better translation of this verse than even the New, El, uh, the new Living Translation. I told you sometimes I flip back and forth. Today I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, but you can go ahead and turn there and whatever version of Scripture you have. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Several years ago, here, I did a sermon on this verse. And uh, the same points that I had then are going to be the same points that I had now. But keep in mind, this is not a recycled sermon. Because where we were when I preached this last is not where we are now. And so we are looking at this aspect of peace as something that has to be made rather than kept. And I want to look at three different characters today or three different types of people. And each of those types of people will be a point in the message. But what does Matthew 5, verse 9 read like? And this is in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. The very first chapter of his Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5. And we start out with a section called the Beatitudes, or the blessings, if you will. And Jesus gives us a list of several different people who are blessed. And he gets to... Verse 9, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the what? Children of God. That's a pretty awesome thing to be called. You've heard me state from the pulpit here or in teaching in a class that not, and this may be hard, but hear me out on this. Not all people are God's children. Despite what you may hear from other pastors, what you may hear from other spiritual leaders, politicians, that we are all, as the human race, children of God, that's not what Scripture teaches. Now, let me explain. We are all 
created in the very image of God. We are all knit together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. But when it comes to being a child of God, there's a radical shift and transformation that must occur. And it's salvation through Christ Jesus. It's what makes us children of God. We become, as Paul says in Romans, grafted in. The Gentiles are. Who were the Gentiles? They were anybody who wasn't born a Jew, who wasn't a part of the chosen people in the Old Testament. This message was meant to go to the Gentiles way before the New Testament. The Old Testament Jewish mandate in Genesis chapter 12, it was their great commission, if you will. Genesis 12, 1 1 through 3 was, Abraham, I'm calling you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. But I will make you a blessing to all the nations. Well, through Abraham's lineage, they neglected to be the blessing that God had purposed for them to be to all the nations and instead became a very ingrown people and a very adulterous generation is the way the Old Testament calls it in the sense that they, they gave themselves over to worship of other gods, other false gods. In the New Testament, Jesus became the fulfillment of the blessing to the nations, thus completing that great commission that God had given the Israelites through, Moses, or through uh, Abraham in Genesis 12. And now we have a great commission as well in Matthew 8, 28, 19 through 20 as an ongoing chapter or the next phase of, if you will, God's giving us a part in that as believers in Christ in our day and age. So who is a child of God? A child of God is someone who has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Someone who has said yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. It's not somebody that just intellectually believes that there is a God and that there was a guy named Jesus. It's somebody who has completely been transformed by the renewing of that mind and by the transformation of the heart. It is a surrendering and a dying of the old self and a rising to new life in Jesus Christ. Those of you that want to be baptized and that plan on taking next week's class, you're going to hear a lot of that. Baptism signifies of dying to self and a rising to new life in Jesus Christ. But back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Here's what I want you to uh, consider as our main point for today, our key point, and it's this. Peace is made, it's not merely kept. It is a product, or shall I say a byproduct, of a life lived in the Spirit of God. A few weeks ago, Matt McCarrier stood on this very stage and preached a message from Galatians chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine Paul says, are fruit of the Spirit. What ha- Some of you, how many of you have fruit trees in your yard? Few of you. So what does a fruit tree do? It produces or bears fruit. And if it doesn't, then something, it could be dead, or the soil may not be right, or you may not be pruning it properly. And of course, we can go to John chapter 15 and read about the gardener who is the Lord God and the, the, the vine who is Jesus and we being the branches. We are either cut off because we're dead 
or we are cut off because we're not producing, or we are pruned if we are producing. That's a whole nother sermon for a different time. But those of us that have plants or vegetable gardens or fruit trees know that the purpose of a fruit tree is to do what? Produce fruit. And so Paul gives us this analogy in Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament that the fruit of the Spirit are these things, peace being one of them. And I love how it doesn't contradict with what Jesus says because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's basically saying, my children, those who are called by my name, those who believe in me, are to produce peace. Not just merely keep peace. It's not about, okay, whoa, 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 we gotta calm down. Did you, whoa, ease up. It's not about just keeping the peace between two warring factions. It is about making peace where two warring factions are not willing to come to the table. Guess where that puts you as a peacemaker? Right in the middle. And you know why we don't have a lot of peace in this world? It's because I think, at least in our culture, the church has decided, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get in the middle of that. That's not on my business. And it's not that you're butting into business. It's that you are going as an advocate of God Almighty to produce peace in a situation that is tumultuous that is tense, that is frustrating, that is damaging and destructive. And yet, we allow fear to hold us back from producing this fruit. See, ladies and gentlemen, I knew in November, October of last year, and I started jokingly saying it from this platform, and those of you online probably remember me saying this too, it's that, ah, 2020 has been a great year of joy, hadn't it? Our theme for last year was joy, and I started saying, guess what next year's theme is? Peace. But God started to illuminate to me, as tough as 2020 has been in finding joy, 2021's probably going to be as tough in finding peace. But you miss the point if you think you're on a search to find it, it's something you have to make, and you can't make it apart from me. Now, I'll talk about that a little bit in just a moment. We can find peaceful people who aren't children of God, but there's a peace that is sustaining and that is eternal, and then there's this peace that's fleeting and temporary, and we'll talk about that. So there are three different people. What's the first person on the list? And like I said, this may be familiar to you because these same words I used several years ago. The first person we're going to look at is a peacetaker. What is a peacetaker? Well, Proverbs 12, verse 20, the New Living Translation reads, Deceit fills hearts that are plotting evil. What fills the heart of a person who's scheming evil in their minds? Deceit. What is deceit? Lying, dishonesty. So if I'm plotting evil, I'm going to try to figure out a way to do something that's not quite right, but I got to figure out a way to do it and not get caught. <laughs> That's what this verse is talking about. 
Deceit fills hearts that are plotting evil. They're saying, how can I get, how can I do this? How can I, no crime has ever been committed where somebody didn't think, how can I do this and get away with it? Unless it is just a crime of passion, heat of the moment, and they're really not thinking straight. But many crimes are premeditated to the point where I've got to figure out how to do this without being caught. So deceit fills hearts that are plotting evil. But what is the next part of that say? It says, joy fills hearts that are planning peace. Last year and this year are connected. Joy fills your heart when you're planning peace. And it says planning peace. What are you planning to do? You're planning to make it. To be an extension of it. You're not just merely planning to keep it. And hold on to it as best you can. So what is a peacetaker? It's somebody who's figuring out a way to cause problems and try to figure out a way to get away with it. Peacetakers end up stealing the joy in your life. Have you ever had somebody steal the joy in your life? Somebody said, oh yeah. <laughs> They're ever seeking new ways to be negative, condescending, arrogant, rude, obnoxious, flirtatious, temperamental, and the list could go on and on and on. You probably have some other adjectives as well to put in there to describe what these peacetakers peace do in your life. I believe the most destructive thing about a peacetaker is that their greatest weapon is their tongue. James chapter 3 tells us the damaging effects of the tongue. With that same tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and yet we curse someone who was made in the image of God. He doesn't say we curse children of God. We curse somebody who was made in the very image of God. So he's not even saying that you're cursing somebody who is a child of God, but it's anybody, even your enemy. So you can come to church on a Sunday, or you can sing the Christian music in your car, or you can live this life outwardly called Christianity, but talk like the devil. Your mouth becomes destructive. James says it becomes, it sets fires that blaze and destroys. He even says we can take bits and put them in the mouths of horses, which are huge, and we can control a Clydesdale. Now, he doesn't put the word Clydesdale in there, but that's the biggest horse I can think about. We put bits in the mouths of horses, and we can turn them wherever we want to go, but we can't control this little muscle inside our mouth. Do you see the contrast James is making? Peacetakers use that tongue as a weapon, either passive-aggressively or dominant-aggressively, and they leave a wake of destruction in what they take by what they say. Now, on the flip side of that is, peacetakers can only take what you allow them to take from you. Amen. Okay? So I, this victim mentality is something that needs to go by the wayside. Well, I can't, this person told, my dad told me I was no good for nothing and I was never gonna amount to anything. Yeah, my, mine did too a time or two. 
And you can allow that person, even after death, to continue to take your peace. Or you can stand firmly planted in the truth of Jesus Christ, who came to give you life abundantly and restore peace to you and take the victimhood away and nail that to the cross and say, now I'm giving you life. I've had peacetakers in my life. Undoubtedly, every one of you here or on camera or at home watching have had somebody that has stolen your peace. The enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, the one we call Satan, the devil, did you know he cannot take from us what we don't give him? I mean, it, it's subtle. We think, the, you ever heard the term, when I was growing up, the devil made me do it? You ever heard of that? He can't make you do anything. He really cannot. Oh, he could trip you up. He's very crafty, very deceitful. He's able to do a lot of things to get you tripped up, logically and otherwise. I mean, go all the way back, you, you can't, the, where this all began, in the garden, Genesis 3, I, I uh, allude to this a lot. Where did everything go off track? It's when the serpent, the embodiment of the evil one, comes, wraps itself around this tree, and begins to talk to Eve about the fruit that's on this tree that God had told Adam and thus Eve not to eat from. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And... and he didn't grab the fruit off the tree and slam it in her mouth, did he? Is that how the narrative goes? The serpent's there and he's craftier than any other creature on the earth. He grabs that fruit and he hog ties Eve and he shoves it in her mouth. Oh, the image that you get when you think of that, right? Now, what does he do? He can't make her do what she's not willing to do out of her own freedom of choice. See, peacetakers are very good at this. They can't take from you what you're not willing to give them. The enemy says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, Eve says, no, 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 no. It's just this tree. We're not to eat from it or even touch it or we'll die. Oh, are you sure? God didn't really mean that. You know, here's, here's the thing. Eve, and imagine Satan's not the pitchfork and horns and pointy tail. He's crafty. He sometimes looks like a being of light, we are told in Scripture. Hey, Eve, let me tell you something. See, God's not giving you the whole truth. Go ahead and take a piece of it. I mean, doesn't it look good? Go ahead and take a piece of it. See, God knows that when you eat this fruit, you're going to become just like him, knowing both good and evil. Don't you want that? Well, the fruit does look good. I mean, I've, I've walked by this tree every day, and, and it's the fragrance from the blossoms. Oh, man. It's the sweetest smell I've ever smelled. 
I mean, the other fruit trees are great, but this one has a, a, a scent that, now this isn't in scripture. I'm just painting a picture of how the enemy snags us into temptation and causes us to trip up. So please don't think I'm adding to the Bible, but picture yourself in the garden. How could Eve be so stupid? Well, all right, let me explain. How could we be so stupid when we mess up? It's because, it's, it, it, I, I just, I don't know, it just, it just happened. That's what my kids say. It just happened. It's not my fault. It was my brother or my sister. That's in Genesis 3 too, by the way. <laughs> Nothing's new under the sun. I'm really digressing on this. So one, peacetakers are always causing problems wherever they go. You can tell them by the wake of destruction they leave behind them. You could tell them by the way people avoid them like the plague, okay? Number two, peacetakers suck the life out of people in relationships. You could call them peace suckers too, I guess, if you want to. They suck the life out of people and relationships. Do you know people like that? They don't make peace. They take peace in a way that leaves you a shriveled up prune when you're done. That's only if you allow them to do that, okay? And thirdly, uh, peacetakers' main motivation is their selves. They don't think about anybody else. Every conversation, when you're in a, when you're, here's, here's an indicator, not always the truth, but here's an indicator. When you're in conversation with a peacetaker, they always find a way to turn the conversation back to them and their issues. They rarely think about the other person. If you're one of those people, maybe you need to have a come to Jesus meeting and say, God, help me not to be so much about me, but more about you. And in being more about you, I can be about others. All right. Number two, peace fakers. So peace takers suck the life out and they take peace away. What do peace fakers do? F-A-K-E-R. I think I spelled that correctly. Peace fakers. Here's another proverb from chapter 10, verse 10. People who wink at wrong cause trouble. I winked earlier, but it was not the kind of winking that was wrong. It was just being silly, right? But those, the, I, give, give, give this some, some thought. People who wink at wrong cause trouble. It's like uh, what Eve did in the garden. Oh, the, when she's, the, the fruit does, did look good. That's what it said. They looked at it and it, it did look good for the taking. I'm winking at wrong. God said don't, don't eat it. But it does look good. What am I doing? I'm winking at wrong. Hey, it does look good. Right? Sorry. But that's how it works. Think of situations in your own life where you're tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do. But it's, it feels so right. There's something about it that's so attractive that it's hard to overcome. It's hard to resist. People who wink at wrong cause trouble. But a bold reproof promotes peace. Now, how does that play into the peace faker? Because they will not do the bold reproof to bring peace. 
They're the kind of people that say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, it's not a big deal, oh, it's okay, no, this is all right. And, and they pull up the rug and they sweep the problem under there. And there's no, what, that lump? Oh, it's been there since we bought the house. Yeah, don't know what it is. Don't want to look at it. Don't look at it at what you can't see. Can't hurt you, right? It's all good. Sometimes tense situations need to play themselves out to get on the other side in order to find peace. But when a peacemaker comes in and instead of making peace, they try to keep the peace by shutting the tension down. Not all tension needs to be shut down. Uh, Andy Stanley, pastor uh, down at North Point in Atlanta, Georgia, says, not all tensions need to be resolved. Do you hear that? There are some that need to be resolved, but not every tension needs to be resolved. And what peacemakers do is try to cover up every tense situation. They're the ones you see on Sunday morning. How are you? Oh, everything's fine. Everything's perfect. And you know their life's falling apart. Now, the difference in somebody who's faking peace and taking peace is that the peace faker needs help, but they're not willing to ask for it because they don't want to pull you into the drama or they're embarrassed about the drama. And so their pride won't let them let the wall down so that you could come in and help make peace with them in their current situation. A peacetaker always tries to point back to themselves. And so the peacemaker thinks, I don't want to be a peacetaker and get everybody sucked into my situation. I'll deal with it on my own. But that is a tactic and a tool of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He does a good job in isolation. The enemy, if he can isolate you and get you stuck in your problem, then he's won half the battle over you and over your situation. See, peace fakers fake it till they make it. The sad truth is they never make it. These are the ones that end up leaving the church because it just got so hard. I've worked all my life. I've put in hours there. I've done this. I've done that. I've given money. I've done all of these things. And my life's still falling apart. But did anybody know? How many times do you think as a pastor in 20-some years of ministry, I have gotten calls or I've been told by other people, so-and-so left the church. Oh, really? Why? Well, they're, they've, this happened or that happened, and this is happening in their life, and nobody's calling to check on them. I'm like, I had no clue. How can I help if I don't know the problem? But it's my fault. Or it's your fault. You didn't know my marriage was falling apart. Wasn't it evident? Ah, uh, no, I'm pretty oblivious at most things. Ask my wife. <laughs> and she's hopefully watching from home, right, hon? She's not feeling well today. So. Right, so anyway, so it's, it's like, I honestly, like, literally am so oblivious. So if something's going on in your life, unless you tell me, I don't know, Okay. And half the time I do forget, that's another bad quality of mine. I probably shouldn't be in the ministry. <laughs> it's true. All right, so a little transparency there. All right, let me, let, me, let, me, let me finish this up. Peace fakers live in avoidance mode. 
Okay, that's the first thing. They live in avoidance mode. Um, let's see, Philip Keller. I love his books. He's got several classics. It's uh, a gardener looks at uh, uh, the vine and the branches. Uh, and then there's another one. A shepherd looks at the Psalm 23. So there's several books out there by Philip Keller. But he says that the path of peace which God's word instructs us to pursue is not strewn softly with rose petals. Rather, it's a tough trail trampled out with a humble heart and a lowly spirit despite its rocks of adversity. I had to meditate on that a little bit when I was looking uh, through resources this week to plan for the sermon. The path of peace which God's word instructs us to pursue, making, go, blessed are the peacemakers. That is a calling for us to go make peace. And then Philip Keller saying that path of peace in which we are to make that God's word instructs us to pursue is not strewn softly with rose petals. Okay? But we do get this picture of peace. We get this misunderstanding of peace that if I'm pursuing peace, then it's going to be a path that's wide and soft and be like a wedding day and the bride coming down and then the, the uh, what's it called? The, tra the runner, thank you. The aisle runner's laid out. It's white and beautiful. And on top of that are these rose petals and flower petals. Just, that's the way we think peace should look. But it's peace in spite of that is what he's talking about. See, rather it's a tough trail trampled out with a humble heart and a lowly spirit despite the rocks of adversity. Jesus in two chapters later, Matthew 5, you go over to Matthew chapter 7, he says there are two different paths. He said there's this narrow path and this wide path. He says many people take the wide path because it's easy. That's pretty much what he's saying. But very few take the narrow path, which leads to me. He said the narrow path also has a narrow gate. It's one of those where you kind of have to shimmy through. And it's not because God tries to make it difficult for us to get to him. It's just because living in a fallen world is difficult enough. Trying to do the right thing is even more difficult. But if you work hard and you're able to get through there, you can make it. The narrow path is not easy. I've said this over and over again. John chapter 16, verse 33, I mentioned it last week. What does Jesus tell his disciples? In this world, you're going to have troubles of many kinds. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So in this world, it's not going to look pretty. It's not going to look like a bed of roses or an aisleway of rose petals. It may be difficult. But you can still have peace in spite of that. Number two, peacemakers lack the ability to maintain core values and morals. So I said they, they live in avoidance mode, and peacemakers lack the ability to maintain core values and morals. And here's what I mean by that. If we truly care for others, we'll want to make a difference by standing for what's right. Peacemakers don't stand for what's right because sometimes standing for what's right may put you squarely in opposition to somebody else. Did you know there is actually truth that exists in the world today? Truth is not a relative concept. There is a right and wrong. There is a black and white. There is a do and not do. Every country has a system of laws that govern what the people can and cannot do. 
The unique thing about the United States, or at least was about the United States, is that our laws were founded on biblical principles, the Judeo-Christian principles. The Ten Commandments still hang in many of our courtrooms today as the basis for our legal system. Peacemakers lack the ability to maintain core values and morals because they're constantly in flux about trying to keep the peace that they avoid doing the right thing and speaking the truth in love. Because peacemakers avoid conflict at all costs, the lines of right and wrong often become very fuzzy. At best, peacemakers justify sinful behavior that tolerance not only becomes a buzzword for avoidance, but also the banner under which society is destroyed. This buzzword in our society today is called tolerance. Why? It's because we have a ton of peace fakers out there trying to make everybody feel good and feel happy and everybody live in la-la land, but there is a truth. There is a right and wrong. And it's not that we as the church are to point the condemnation finger at everybody, but when we speak the truth, even in love, there is a stark contrast sometimes in other people's behaviors and lifestyles to what the truth of God's word actually says. Well, you can't judge me. So the peacemaker doesn't want to be considered a judger or a homophobe or a phobophobe or any kind of phobe. They're the ones that are like, no, 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 I'm not a homophobe. Look, I love gay people. And yes, we are too. There is no question about that. If we are to love everyone, our neighbor, you are to love everyone. No matter their skin color, creed, gender, lack of gender, or whatever. The truth of the matter is, we are indiscriminate lovers of people the way God is indiscriminately loving of us. But there is this point of truth. Because we love and because God first loved us, he made a way for us where there was no way by dying on a cross to save us from sin and death. A peace faker will avoid that conversation because they don't want to be offensive to somebody. But see, that conversation could save a person from hell. And yes, we still talk about hell here at North Maine. There is a place called heaven, which is where the kingdom of God is, where his will is done perfectly, and where there is no sin, sorrow, death, pain, or anything that is destructive. We can't even fathom a place like that right now. We might dream of it, but it's hard to conceptualize. But there is also another place, a place that was created not for humans, but for Satan and all those principalities and powers that are against God. But those who reject Christ and who reject the truth of God and his word, God loves enough to allow them to make their own decisions. See, the peace faker can be as much, if not more damaging than the peace taker because they know the truth that can set people free from sin and death and yet they don't want to be offensive and so they hold on to it because they're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. That's a scary place to be. Peace fakers always prefer peace over truth as well. Lastly, let me close with this, peacemakers. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, All this new, this is chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, excuse me. All this newness of life is from God, who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message that he has given us to tell others. So here's what that means. John chapter 3, 16. Jesus' own words to Nicodemus, who had come to him in the middle of the night to talk about who he was. And Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What was Jesus telling Nicodemus that night? He's saying God realized there was a need for reconciliation between humanity and him. And so at just the right time in human history, because of God's love for the world, he stepped into eternity, or excuse me, out of eternity and into time to do what sinful beings could not do for themselves. He lived perfectly. He fulfilled the old covenant by living perfectly, and now gives us a new covenant through his death. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't just give him to the world. He gave all of him to the world, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that we might have the opportunity now to not have to go through, as I mentioned last week, animal sacrifices, several different courts of the temple, and blah, 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 but rather have complete access to God. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. Then we'll not perish. We'll have everlasting life. What's a peacemaker do then? If God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and we've surrendered our lives to Christ in salvation, then what? then does Paul say we are to be doing? We have been given, because of what Christ did, reconciling us to God, he now imbues us with the responsibility to be reconcilers of people to him. Not to us, but to him. Where does peace lie? Is it in fixing a broken marriage between two people? Actually, I contend that real peace happens in reconciling first a person to God and then to the other person. Oftentimes in counseling sessions when I meet with people and they're having relationship issues, and one of the first questions I do try to ask is, how's your relationship with Christ? Do you have any sin in your life that's unrepentant? What's your life like right now? How are you living? What are you doing? What's your behavior like? What's your mindset like? Are you completely surrendered to Christ in all areas of your life? And then we talk about relationship issues. You see, real peace, true peace cannot come apart from Christ. And if two people are at war, two groups are at war, or two nations are at war, we can look and say, well, it's because of this thing or that thing or this thing or that thing. As a believer in Christ, it's because Christ isn't the focus. Why do people fight? Because the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the author of peace, Jesus, is not the subject. Why do nations war? Because the enemy is good and crafty and deceitful and he does his best to get us focused on issues 
Rather, I was going to say than his shoes, but no, because it sounded rhyming. No, get us focused on issues rather than Jesus. Again, I, I use this illustration often because it's in the Bible and it just speaks volumes to me. But Jesus tells the disciples to go across to the other side of the, the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And he says, I'm going to go up here and pray and I'll come around and I'll, I'll come on down and, and meet you on the other side. And it's later in the night and <laughs> they see this figure walking on the water. And they suppose it's a ghost um, guessing they've seen ghosts before. I don't know what you would speculate about that. Who knows how that works? But he's walking on the water, Jesus is, and they think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Hey, guys, it's me. And Peter says, oh, yeah? If it's you, call me to, call, call me to come out to you on the water. And he gets out of the boat. Jesus says, all right, come on. And he gets out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water to Jesus. And what happens? He starts looking around, as I probably would have, saying, how am I doing this? Do you ever act? Do you ever just, do you, are you ever reactive without thinking through what you're doing? Peter did that a lot. He's like, all right, if it's you, call me to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, come on. And he's like, all right. And he jumps out there, and I get this picture of Peter. He's like, what am I doing? You know, because he's realizing I'm doing something I shouldn't be able to do. And he starts to have fear creep in because he's like, oh no, what's going on? It's interesting to me that he takes his eyes off Jesus. He takes his eyes off Christ. And it's at that moment he begins to sink. And Jesus doesn't really scold him for this. He's, he looks, <clears throat> he reaches down to pull him back up, get him in the boat safely. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know what the interesting concept of that whole picture is? He wasn't doubting Jesus because he did obediently what Jesus told him to do. Come on over. What did he start to doubt? Himself. See, peacemakers don't doubt who Christ is. They keep their eyes fixed on him, and they don't doubt themselves because they are children of God. And they don't walk around with a chip on their shoulder saying, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God. They don't carry that just as a bad, it's a humble walking in the Lord. They think before they speak. Peacemakers are always about the business of reconciliation. Always about the business of reconciliation, even where reconciliation seems impossible. Number two, peacemakers always function out of unconditional love and concern for others, no matter who they are, where they are, and what they're doing. They do. Unconditional love, agape love, achava love of the Old Testament, and then the, the Greek term in New Testament, agape, agapeo. Number three, peacemakers are always at risk of rejection, sometimes even to the point of death. You look at some of the early martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's several other books about the early martyrs and even martyrs today. Those that stand in the gap to make peace can sometimes be martyred. Those who stand in the gap to do the right thing may come under the most strict and severe persecution, which is why peacemaking is avoided by many people. 
But church, let me tell you today, we are not called to filter off into the bushes like Homer Simpson in that meme. You know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's not worth looking up, so don't go look it up. We have not been called to do that. We have been called to come out of the shadows, church, and not pick it, but we are called to be humble individuals who step into the gap against the right and the left and say, there's a better way than this. I would be remiss if I didn't allude to what's happening in our culture today. The reason there is no peace is because there are no peacemakers focusing those that are at war with one another on the one who is ultimate peace. Instead, we want to fight against the evils of this world with the tactics of this world when Jesus says, don't fight evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Peacemakers don't do things the way the world does them. That's why they're hated by both sides. If you are not hated by both sides, then you're doing something wrong. I have stood on this stage, not intentionally tried to make people angry at me, but on both political sides of the spectrum. They don't like what I say. They like some of the things, but you shouldn't have said this. Well, I like this, but you shouldn't have said that. You see, when you are reading the scripture with the blinders off, you realize it's not right or left either. It is a totally different perspective of a totally different life and a totally different kingdom. That's why Jesus, standing before the power of his day and age, Pontius Pilate, said, my kingdom is not, what? Of this world. Believers in Christ have a different citizenry. They do. Because that kingdom will never go away. When we get to heaven someday, if we make it, there won't be the United States people over here, the Africans over here, the Asians over here, the Russians over here. Did you know that? There won't be a Democrat section and a Republican section. There won't. There won't be division at all. Zero division, perfect unity. Church, we are to be the picture of perfect unity this side of heaven. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter, I think it's later part of five or maybe chapter six, he tells his disciples how to pray. And what does he say? Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. And then he goes on, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you are not being an ambassador of the truth of Christ as written in Scripture and trying as a kingdom citizen to usher in that kingdom presence wherever you go, 
See, this is what Jesus means when he said, you are to be light and you are to be salt. The light, of the, the light of the earth, the salt of the earth. How? We are kingdom citizens and we are light and salt ushering in that kingdom here as it is in heaven. Is that the way it looks where you go? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven before you're a citizen of the United States where you go? It sounds horrible to say, right? Because we are a patriotic... Listen, I love the United States. Born and raised here, wouldn't live anywhere else on the face of the earth. But when that becomes our idol, God has no problem taking our idols away so that we can truly see him for who he really is. Just saying. I mentioned this last time. I don't know what God's doing in the heavenly realms while the world around us rages. I don't know what he's doing as our culture is going through one of the most tumultuous times in my life's history. It could be that he's got a bigger plan in mind and there's going to be something amazing to come out of this or it could be an act of his judgment to say, you have rejected me for so long. You have wanted something other than me for so long. You have focused on your desires and your wants as a nation for so long that I'm giving you what you want. And I'm not talking about, don't, I'm not alluding to the fact of, of Biden or Harris or Trump or Pence. That's, you're, if your mind's there, that's not where I'm going. What I'm saying is maybe God has finally gotten to the point with the United States where he's saying, okay, I've contended with you for some 245 years now. And you keep telling me as we keep moving on that you don't want me in your institutions anymore. You don't want me in your legal system anymore. You don't want me in your families anymore. You don't want me in your education. You don't want me anywhere. So I'll give you what you want. And like a gentleman who loves, he bows out gracefully, still extending the love, but saying, I love you enough not to force myself on you. Church, it behooves us not to be peacetakers or to be peacefakers, but rather to be peacemakers. God has always kept a remnant of faithful believers wherever the nations have fallen. Do you know that? May you be counted among the faithful remnant. May we, as North Main Street Church of God, be counted as among those faithful remnant. Being peacemakers, ushering in peace and willing to be rejected, shot at, or whatever the case may be. Pray with me. Father, um, we've kind of gotten off track a time or two in, in thinking that peace is kept rather than made. And remind us of multiple aspects of the word, your word, which tell us that peace isn't merely kept, but it's a product and a byproduct of living in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Remind us that there is no peace where Christ is not the focus. And there is no peace where the children of God don't make it. Remind us of that beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. And may we be that wherever we go. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.